Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Welcome, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Good morning this Thursday morning. You know, I am so excited that we have Ms. Alex Stone, who's the Executive Director of Cooperation Works on the phone with us this morning. Good morning, Alex. Good morning, Vernon. How are you this day? I am great. How are you doing? I'm great. And where are you today? Uh, right now I am in Livingston, Montana. Montana. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Hey. Normally I'm, I'm in Oakland, California, but uh, on this fine morning, I happen to be in Livingston. <laughs> okay. So what is Cooperation Works? Cooperation Works is a national network of cooperative developers. So our members provide training, education, technical assistance, and other support to groups that are starting co-ops or possibly expanding their co-ops all across the country. And our members are uh, cross-sector, so we do have some folks like the Food Co-op Initiative that you know works nationally but focuses very specifically in the grocery co-op industry. And then we have other members that tend to serve an entire state or even a few states, and they will engage in, in cross-sector cooperative development. And, yeah, we also provide trainings to uh, newer cooperative developers, and we have some other continuing uh, education through webinars uh, and with our member meetings. So, yeah, that's, that's the gist of the organization, and our members are able to share all sorts of resources uh, and expertise and really strengthen the field of cooperative development through that collaboration. So looking at your picture, you look real young. <laughs> so how long have you been in this work? Well, I've been with Cooperation Works since 2016, the very beginning of 2016. Okay. Yeah, but I, I found my way into co-ops in college through a student housing cooperative uh, and kind of fell in love with the model there and have, have learned a lot since then. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that, that was my introduction. So, and that was at Berkeley? That was at Berkeley. Okay, so student housing, you fell in love with I'm I'm kind of envious of you. I didn't find out about co-ops until I was like 55 years old. I would have loved to have found out about it at in college, uh, in college mm -hmm. age, and to have lived in a housing co-op. And are you still friends with the people you're in a co-op with? Well, a lot of them, yeah. It's a, it's a pretty big network. So the, the Berkeley student co-ops are... Uh, a system of, I don't know if they've grown since then, but when I was there, it was 17 houses oh. and three apartment complexes. And um, the houses ranged in size from, I think 17 was the smallest, uh, 17 people, up to, at the time, 150. Now I think that the biggest house is 125. So I lived in a house that had 150 people and a house that had 56 people. So there's there's a lot of folks to, to be in contact with and make connections with, and I, I'm still very close to, to many of the folks that I met in that system. Wow, I didn't have any idea that they were that big. I knew there was a number of housing co-ops at Berkeley, but I didn't know 125, 150 
Students. Yeah, those those are the largest ones. <laughs> okay, and you all ran them. You had boards that you elected boards of directors, and you all controlled the house. Yeah, so every house and apartment complex had uh, representatives that would basically be the board of directors for this organization. So it's it's actually an, a nonprofit, but uh, every house had one board rep for every 50 members. So, you know, the smallest one still had one board rep. The 150-person house had three. Uh, and I was fortunate enough to serve uh, as a board rep for a semester there, which was uh, really interesting to see sort of the uh, processes that went on at the higher level of the organization that was actually maintaining uh, this much larger system. Uh, and then the houses also had kind of a management team that was elected every uh, semester or year, depending on the position, that kind of oversaw how the house ran and made sure that the students had food and that meals were cooked and that the house got cleaned. There's a, there a lot of levels. But I, I do think, especially being a board rep and really realizing that they're trusting, and we didn't fail them, <laughs> trusting 19-year-olds, 20-year-olds to run an $8 million organization was uh, a pretty neat experience. Uh, to have at that age. Pretty much at any age, but let me say. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, so there are 17 houses from Mm -hmm. 17 people to 150 students in each. How many total students were there? I think there was about 1,300, I want to say. Okay. Uh, In the the housing co-ops, not not the student body population. I know, okay. Yeah, that's what I was asking, in the housing co-op. So you yeah, have 1,300 students in the housing co-op, and in each house, they had one person on the board for up to 50 people. So the 151 mm-hmm. had three people, the 17 one had one person. Yep. Okay. Okay, so you maybe have 26 people on the board, 27, 28, 30 people on the board. It's a big board. About 30, yeah. And they make all the decisions. Now, when they hire managers... Are these students or is this a management company, a professional management company? Are they students? So there was a central uh, management team. So there, there were hired full-time uh, folks that, you know, took rent, um, that ran a central kitchen that made sure that food got distributed to the houses with the help of kitchen or food managers at each house who would order um, and with the help of students who delivered it as part of their work shift in this system. But uh, the board hired the executive director and the executive director would hire the the rest of the staff that was more full-time. So there was a central kitchen and a central maintenance to make sure, you know, in in the Bay Area when a house needs a retrofit, <laughs> to make sure that got done, and to make sure roofs were replaced, the really big stuff, and then also a central office to be the ones who could crack down, uh, you know, if folks needed to pay rent or, you know, address any of those sorts of issues. And do you remember how much you all had in uh, savings for re- replacing roofs or that reserves? Oh, man, I do not remember that okay. now. Because <laughs> no, I'm thinking an um, $8 million income with uh, 17 buildings, you got to get a pretty large amount of of savings. And what I've, I've had NASCO on the program before, that's North American mm-hmm. Student Cooperative, and they tell me how great it is for students that are 18, 19, 20-year-olds, 21 perhaps, that – will save for future students and they understand they're saving money to replace a roof that may not get replaced for 10 or 15 years, but they're willing Mm -hmm. to. And, and he was almost eager to make those savings to make sure that the housing is there for students in the future. Did you find that same kind of thing at Berkeley? 
Yeah, and I think it was in some ways maybe easier than some smaller or different systems because we had such a strong central system. So, you know, it kind of just came in through the rent uh, and everyone paid, uh, everyone in the, the houses, not the apartment complexes, they uh, paid the same amount of rent. And I believe that they've done well enough in recent years that they've actually been able to lower rent. So I, I don't think they have any any issues with that. And they're still, you know, maintaining things as they need to. And yeah, I, I don't recall that ever being an issue at all. Fantastic. So how, how many years were you in this uh, co-op housing uh, at Berkeley? Three years. Three years. So three of your four or five years. Three of my four, yeah. I found three it and didn't let go. <laughs> okay. And then you said you love this model. Uh, anything in particular that caused you to love it at that age? What what might there have been that caused you to love this cooperative model? I really think, at the, and like I said, I've also learned so, so much since I was first introduced. I think there was a lot I didn't fully understand. Um, there was much larger uh, national work happening that at the time I was completely unaware of. I thought this was a, you know, a special one-off kind of thing when I was 19 and stumbling into this. But I think for me, it was really just this, uh, there was certainly a community element. uh, And that's, I think, what initially drew me there, seeing the pamphlets of, you know, people cooking together and having house meetings. And it seems like a really neat um, just experience. And then I got in and that ownership piece and coming from the dorms, man, when you can't really do anything and then being in this house where it's like, well, yeah, we get to decide kind of what the rules are, how we operate, how we live together, what murals go on the wall, what kind of food we want, if we want to be vegetarian, if we want to buy better meat, like everything uh, the students got to decide. And that was that was just really unique. And I, I think especially at that age, and again, especially coming from the dorms, just so unlike, <laughs> you know, everything I had been told about how we should be getting along. <laughs> um, oh, boy. Yeah. I wish I could have had that experience at that age. That's wonderful. So... What about the rent, uh, the dorm, the fees? Were they about the same as in the dorm, or were they lower no. or higher? <laughs> so this was uh, a while ago, but my freshman year, I lived in a triple in the dorms, which was the cheapest room you could get going through that system, and it was about $10,000. And uh, for the student housing costs, I think it was around like six. 50 or so a month, including food and utilities, it was, it was a much better, it was much more affordable. Um, it definitely made, uh, it reduced the debt I left college with in a super helpful way. <laughs> That's what I kind of expected it would be lower because you have total control and ownership. And once you know that, I assume that the students also took better care of those houses in the co-op than they would their dorm room or the hallways in the dorm. Yeah, well, I mean, I think a lot of it is also that we, you know, every student who's part of that system has to do five hours of work shift a week as well. So instead of paying people to come in and clean and cook, we, we're all doing that for each other. And everyone owed, yeah, those five hours. And uh, I was really lucky one semester to get to spend my entire work shift cooking for five hours every Thursday afternoon for about 100 people, <laughs> which was great. Not necessarily everyone's jam, but, you know. There's uh, workshops that take care of cleaning various parts of the house, making sure the kitchen's cleaned after meals. And, and I think that's, that's really a driver of cost savings as well. So you had some sweat equity in there. And I just did my oh, math. Yeah. I assume you'd have to pay 650 times 12 months because it has to stay operational all year round. It was mostly, so there's kind of two 
um, there's a school year, which is what your contract is for. And then they have separate contracts for summer since a lot of students will leave. So the 650 is just for the, uh, the school year. And then summer contracts often didn't include food, so they were actually a bit cheaper. So then that's about $6,500 versus 10000 and it includes yeah. your food. So that's a, that's a great break. I didn't know yeah. it would be like 35% less. Yeah, and I think that they've actually managed to reduce their rent in the last few years in, in the Bay Area where everything is just... Going up, going crazy. Yeah, yeah I mean, that, it's really impressive. Yeah. Okay, Ms. Alex Stone, Executive Director of Cooper. Cooperation works. That's a great story, and I, I really wish I could have had it in undergrad, living in a housing co-op and having that control and making decisions and all of that, and lowering your costs, which is all of the benefits of co-ops. That's why I like this model. We're going to take our first break and come back and talk about what else you have done in co-ops and then get into what are the, the kinds of things that Cooperation Works does. And you, like I said, you still sound young, so it's caused you to also get more experience and responsibility at a younger age in this cooperation world. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, WOF, 95.9 FM. Information is power. Well, not information is stored power. You don't get that information until you put some action to it. And the reason the National Cooperative Bank is sponsoring this program is to give you the information about co-ops. And if you really want power, the kind of power that Alex was just talking about as a young person, a teenager in her early years to help to run an $8 million business at Berkeley, if you want that power, then you can get this information, but you have to put the information to, to work. And sometimes the reason we want you to listen to this program is so if you have a business you want to start, you might get with three or four other people and start a cooperative business or search out a co-op and buy your products or service from there. And we'll talk about more co-ops as we continue. So Alex, let me ask you, what did you do after the Berkeley experience? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that actually fed pretty directly into uh, my next few years. During my final year at Berkeley, there was a movement to start a uh, student-run food cooperative, which is actually a collective. It's also technically a nonprofit, but it uh, did come into existence. So I was a part of that group. And then after I graduated uh, with one of the other folks that was working on it, we co-founded the Cooperative Food Empowerment Directive, which at the time uh, had a mission of training students to open food co-ops on other campuses. I think recently they've shifted to more specifically and emphatically focus on like food sovereignty and food justice in marginalized communities. So there's been a little bit of uh, a shift recently, but at the time it was uh, used as a, a training tool for, for students on other campuses. And then after that, once the, uh, just as the Berkeley Student Food Collective was about to open, I was hired as their operations manager kind of took them through startup there, spent a couple of years building up the store. And I'm happy to report that, Nine years later, they are, they're still running and happy and, and doing well. Great. Yeah. Okay, so what year did you graduate? 2009. Okay. So the reason I keep saying you sound young, that's to me you are. I'm 72, and I figured out I was 47 when I heard about co-ops. Uh, that's about 25 years ago. So to get that at 18, it would have been great to have this experience and also to get the experience that you've had at 
helping to start a student collective, to help to start a business, <laughs> and then to run it, that's just phenomenal. And it's also still there and it's still successful nine years later. That's great. Yeah, it's it's a, a project I hold near and dear to my heart. And uh, I still interact with the person who is currently there, the kind of one hired employee right now. And it's really good to still be in contact and, and see that they're still, you know, doing well and, and have students engaged. And yeah, it's uh, I would say it was really neat in the first few years, at least. When we first opened, so few people knew about us. But then with every new wave of incoming freshmen and transfer students, within just a few years, it went from such a small percentage of students even knowing about the store to being one of those fixtures where you come into this place and you're maybe, you know, a lot of folks aren't necessarily there for more than those four years, but they come in and whatever's there, it's kind of just been there since time immemorial. So it, it, was, it was neat to watch that transformation happen of instead of being this weird store that folks were, you know, didn't know about or weren't sure about or thought you had to be a member to shop at to being kind of a fixture that people would know as they came in. So the housing co-op is a consumer co-op. That means the people that live in it own it. They are the, they use it, they use the products and services. So was the food co-op owned by the students also? Well, so the, the food, it's the Berkeley student food collective and it's uh, actually also a nonprofit. So it's has a cooperative spirit in that it is run collectively by students who kind of have that workshop model who are members, they get a discount on food, and then they take shifts in the store, like two-hour shifts at the time. They may have changed it since then to make sure that it's stocked and that they're cashiers. And there was also the opportunity for them to lead committees and take on board positions and get their hands a little dirtier with either the business side or potentially with student engagement with kind of the more politically active side. There was, there was a a lot of space for students to get involved at the level that they wanted to. But unfortunately, because it's a nonprofit, there's a, there's no dividends at the end of the year. <laughs> just the, just the upfront discount for members. Okay. That can be a dividend in itself. Yeah. So where did you go from the student food collective? Where did you go next? Well, I actually took some time and traveled for a bit after that and came back and um, was involved with a couple cooperative projects uh, in the Bay Area. And these were where some really good lessons were learned. <laughs> um, but I was doing that kind of as a more, they were both very early phase. And uh, those two didn't come to fruition in a lasting way. But like I said, there, there were some really good lessons learned. And mm -hmm. I, um, I also, at that time, was working farmer's markets for a local pasta shop for a couple of years uh, before I came to Cooperation Work. Okay. And wh when did you come to Cooperation Works? I started in January 2016. Okay. So what is Cooperation Works? Let's change it a little bit. We got your history and it sounds exciting. What is mm -hmm. Cooperation Works? You said a little yeah. bit about a national cooperation created to grow the cooperative movement model across the United States. So you're a national organization. Mm-hmm. And how many... That's exactly what I was going to get to. Okay. Um, we have 34 organizational members and 13 individual members. And collectively, even though they're located in, I think, 29 different states, they actually work nationally when taken together. And like I said earlier, they're a cross-sector as well. So we have folks working in producer co-ops and food co-ops and worker co-ops. and It's all across the board. So if there's anybody out there that haven't heard me say this, there are four basic types of co-ops that they can be different variations. 
But the first one is a worker co-op, and that's a co-op that's owned and controlled by the employees. So any business you can think of could be a worker cooperative if it's owned and controlled by the employees. And the second one, if it's owned and controlled by the people that use the products or services, it's called a consumer cooperative. And that's, we talked about food co-ops, there's credit unions, and you can have other, there's a health clinic in Madison, Wisconsin, that's owned by the patients. And so it's a patient-centric health clinic. So that's the other big type. And then food co-ops can be either. It can be a a worker-owned cooperative or it can be a consumer-owned cooperative. And there are some hybrids that's owned by both. Uh, and then the third type is a purchasing cooperative, and that's when people come together. A lot of farmers are using it, and artists are beginning to use it. They come together to buy their products or services together so they can buy in volume and they can get a lower price and normally a better quality because whomever is managing that will know more about the products and can negotiate better deals. And on the flip side of the the farm, if you will, or the business is the marketing cooperative. And they come together, farmers come together and join and make these co-ops or artists or whomever that markets the products or services. And people like Cabot Creamery, which takes all of the milk from the, I don't know, it was 9,000 farmers that belonged there. Uh, nine something, 900, 9,000, don't remember, but they take this milk and they make it into cheese and cottage cheese and everything like that. And ocean spray, those are all different types of marketing co-ops. So those are the basic four. So when you talk about them, I just wanted people to, Alex, if you talk about the different types that have a sense of what makes a cooperative. It's owned and controlled by its members. And mm-hmm. who, who owns and controls it is what type of cooperative it is. Okay. So I heard 34 organizations. How many developers, individual developers? Uh, so we have 13 individual members right now. And, you know, within the within the organizations, there's anywhere from one to maybe up to 10 or so developers that are part of our organizational members as well. Okay. So 34 organizations, one to 10 members or one to 10 developers, and then 13 individual members who are, they develop co-ops. Yes. They, uh, like I said earlier, provide the training, education. So sometimes it's in the form of a statewide conference or a national conference, but that's more targeted to a specific industry. They provide technical assistance to specific groups that come to them who are wanting to start up cooperative enterprises. Yeah, and then whatever other support might need to be offered. That could be referrals to the accountants that will actually help them be able to run their business. It might be referrals to co-op-oriented lawyers. Yeah, our members do a lot in, in helping to get these cooperative enterprises up and running. Okay. So I see that one of the statements from your webpage is that Cooperation Works envisions a society in which thriving, cooperatively-owned enterprises are the bridge to a just, resilient democracy. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, I like that. <laughs> it's a big vision. <laughs> and your mission seems very similar to NCB's National Cooperative Bank's mission, strengthen America's cooperative movement by building and empowering a network of skilled cooperative development practitioners. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we're going to have to take our second break here, and I want to come back and talk about some of the specific co-ops that you all have helped to develop. And in D.C., there's a cooperative 
stakeholders group and one of the aims was to create a development corporate development center but we'll be right back and talk about some of these additional things Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, WOS, at 95.9 FM. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and we have Alex Stone on the line with us this morning. She's Executive Director of Cooperation Works, and we talked a little bit about what Cooperation Works is. It's a group of cooperation development centers or organizations. There's 34 of these organizations and within 29 states, but they pretty much cover all of the U.S. And they have 13 individual members who develop co-ops and help co-ops to improve themselves. So, Alex, can you give me some examples of the different co-ops or I think on your webpage they're called success stories? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so I think that you're probably going to pick out a couple of the stories from uh, from the webpage, but they they really range. Um, the success stories are are also published actually in a, an annual newsletter uh, that Cooperation Works put at, puts out. But there are a number of grocery stores that are success stories within our members. I actually recently put together a about a 50 slide slideshow highlighting success stories for for our members, which range from a worker-owned cafe in Maine to a farmer-producer co-op in Pennsylvania. There's a fisherman's co-op or a fisher-person's co-op in uh, New Hampshire. There's a number of projects in California as well. There's a peony growers cooperative in Alaska. What kind of grower? Um, it's a, what kind of a grower? peony What's kind that? of flower, peonies. Oh, a flower. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, so they they really range, and I know on our website I think you had specifically looked at maybe that the Ronan Cooperative Brewery, Ronan Cooperative Brewery, which I don't think is up and running yet, but they are working with the community, and hopefully we'll have that up. So that's in Montana, and I think yeah. in Montana from the cowboy days, and a brewery sounds very appropriate in Main Street. <laughs> I think it was to try to bring the Main mm-hmm. Street back up. That and. A fresh start grand opening uh, in Montana also, a food co-op. Yeah, I saw both yeah. of those in there. Okay. Yeah, and in Montana, I think they, um, and, and not just Montana, but I think there's a, a handful of states that are, are both predominantly rural and rural in a way that, uh, you know, the town might only have a few hundred people and the next town might be 50, 60 miles away, also with just a few hundred people. So I know recently there's been quite a project of trying to convert small grocery stores that might be really the only place to get groceries in 30 or 40 or 50 miles. In a lot of these cases, they're, they're not to uh, worker ownership as we often think of conversions, but to uh, a more kind of community-owned consumer co-op model because that's what works in these small communities. But I think these conversions have a, a pretty special role in these communities that really are, are in some ways only able to hold on because they have that source of food in their town. Yeah, I don't know what it would be like if I live in a community where you couldn't buy food. That seemed like for, I have to go 60 miles to get food. Okay. What is this new opportunities for new Americans? That was um, one of your success believe, stories. Yeah, so that's one that comes from the Cooperative Development Institute. So they're a member that works in uh, New England. And I believe this one is working with... Um, some refugee immigrants and helping them basically set up farms and cooperative businesses uh, to basically enable them to put down some roots here and be successful and create their communities. 
So they've assisted, I believe, with there's a new roots. Um, I think there's a, a food business. There's definitely a, a couple farms. Um, yeah, it's a, I think been a, a really great program for them up in. I think most of the most of this is happening in Maine. Yeah, it's, it, that sounds so exciting. That's one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it because you're talking about new immigrants from Somali Bantu refugees. Mm-hmm. So now in the news today, you're mostly talking about the new refugees from south of the border, but you got refugees coming from all over the world and to be yeah. able to come together and form a business working together. That sounds extremely exciting. And yeah. I think that they've had a lot of success with this program and are continuing to work with these folks and, and help lay out some uh, new opportunities. I think it's so critical. <laughs> And the main farmland trust purchased an older farm, a 30-acre farm with an old dairy farm, and then they leased it to the uh, lease with an option to purchase to this new group. That's the that's the community coming together to help. Yep. And we yeah, don't hear absolutely. that as much in the news today. <laughs> yes. Not it's not the thing that makes headlines, I suppose, but it's important but nonetheless. That's why people come here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we have this cooperation and cooperation works helping these folks. Okay. Neato. So that's one, this WYO Fresh Cooperative. Mm-hmm. What was that? Yes. Yeah, so I believe that is a um, kind of an online marketplace. So it specifically is in Wyoming, which is one of those states that, you know, is very rural and, and very spread out in terms of population. So it can be, Uh, I think challenging to uh, have a grocery store that is maybe full service. I think there's issues with rural food distribution. The roots are kind of sparse. Prices are really high. So this is a way for local producers to come together and offer through uh, a platform, basically, uh, online folks to uh, be able to order their food. I think has worked pretty well for them so far. I forget the exact... uh, the exact mileage they cover, but it's a pretty big swath here. It's at 11,000 11, square miles. Yeah, 11,000 square miles. Started in yeah. 2010. An online food co-op. <laughs> okay. mm-hmm. That's the other thing that's so exciting about this cooperative world. It's okay, there's a problem. And then you look at creative ways of solving the problem. And that, to me, is a very creative way. Now, I can't tell by reading if it's a consumer cooperative, does the people that buy their own the co-op? Um, I believe with this one, it's actually the producers own it. I think there is kind of a, um, I think I might be mixing this up with a different one, but I'm pretty sure it's this one where the, the producers are actually the owner, the owners and um, consumers, I think, pay a pretty uh, nominal fee annually to be kind of a member, but not not a vote holding decision-making member, I think, just to be able to participate in that marketplace, if I'm recalling correctly. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's exciting. That's a very creative way to get food and fresh produce, too. Mm -hmm. And to support the local producers in the state who may not otherwise have that, you know, the density of market to be able to really sustain themselves. Boy. So are there any other ones you want to talk about? Before I, this child care co-op, a child care, I don't remember exactly where it was. I, I'm just was looking at your web page. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so this is in uh, North Dakota. And, yeah, it's, uh, I think, 
77 children. This one, I think, was also featured in our website. So it might have some more, even more up-to-date information on that. Um, so this is developed by uh, the North Dakota Association of Rural Electric Co-ops. They have a co-op development arm that is uh, one of the members of CW. Uh, hold on a second. So there's the Rural Electric Cooperative, and that in itself is a consumer cooperative. It provides electricity, and it was formed in the 30s and 40s mm-hmm. with help from the government to help provide electricity to rural areas. I just want everybody to know. And so here's another example of we've got to have electricity, and the large corp- companies won't put an end to these vast areas because it costs so much to string the lines and so forth. And they won't get a return all of their dollars. So these rural electric co-ops came in and provided electricity for all of this rural area. And they, they I think it's 75%, 75, 80% of the land of the United States is provided electricity by these rural electric co-ops. And then now they are creating a child care. Okay. Tell me about that. <laughs> well, this is the, yeah, the association of rural electric co-ops in North Dakota. And they, um, they do have a co-op development branch, and they've been active members of CW for, for quite a long time. So they, they do a lot of work. But, yeah, they uh, helped create this uh, child care co-op that serves, at least at the time this was published, 77 uh, children. This was actually put up here, I, I think, close to two years ago. So it may have grown quite a bit by, by now. I'm not sure. And, yeah, this model has the, uh, the parents as the member owners. And in a town where... Again, like childcare can be hard to come by. I think this offers a solution for parents that's affordable, that enables them to work as is necessary for their families. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's a good model to have out there. Yeah, and that in a rural area, Hayes in North mm-hmm. Dakota. I don't even know where that is, but it's then coming together to create this cooperative to provide childcare because childcare is. It can be New York City. It can be anywhere. It turns out to be one of the larger expenses and the problem for mm-hmm. people going to work, particular women being able to go to work. Uh, how do you have child care that you can afford? I think I had somebody on the program that said, like, child care in New York could be 50% of what the lady would make. Okay. Wow. And so it's sort of like the cost of child care almost prohibits somebody from going to work. And then coming together with these parents owning the business, then they say they have the say of how it works. And then they can also do like you did in the food co-op in Berkeley. You can work and keep the cost down so that the price for childcare is down. Phenomenal way of getting, Mm -hmm. solving this particular problem. And then I really like that rural development, uh, rural electric cooperative, North Dakota association of rural electric cooperatives, it's the one that is doing this because they see the need. There's a need. <laughs> co-ops mm-hmm. to come together to satisfy that need. And that also is the sixth principle of cooperation, cooperation among cooperatives. Yep. Yeah. Love it. Okay. And here the child care uh, director is supervised by the board, and the board is made up of probably the, the family members, the parents. Yeah. Good news. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because what well, child care turns out to be a problem in a lot of communities, whether it's rural or urban. Mm-hmm. Okay. There was the some kind of media, Mountain Tech Media. Yeah, I believe that one is in Kentucky. Um, 
So the Kentucky Center for Agriculture and Research Development and uh, Rural Development, sorry, offered technical assistance to this. So that's a multi-stakeholder co-op and um, provides diversified technology and digital design services uh, to organizations and businesses in the Appalachian region. You can imagine in that region that this is a a pretty critical uh, resource to offer. And, yeah, they uh, certainly... They have some members who are uh, on their way to becoming worker owners of that cooperative. And like I said, these are actually from almost two years ago. So it would be interesting to check back with them and see how that has evolved in the last year and a half, two years. So in the community, there is something that's missing, and that is this technology. And Mm -hmm. so this co-op comes together to provide technology to both companies and individuals. Did I read that? I think it's it's to organizations and businesses. I'm not sure if they also do individuals, but I think it's more um, geared toward probably like nonprofits, hopefully other co-ops, uh-huh. <laughs> and businesses in the region. Okay. So we still have the same formula, though. There is a community. Mm-hmm. There is a need. And yep. groups of people can come together and solve that need. We're going to take our final break here. I like com- this conversation. We'll be right back. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, W.O.S. 95.9 FM. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. The program is Everything Cooperative. And we are talking with Ms. Alex Stone, who's Executive Director of Cooperative Works. And we've already talked about the number of different types of co-ops, that there are 34 Organizational members and 13 individual members have been working on through the years different success stories in different areas of the United States. Alex, what are some of the benefits of a cooperative? Why would somebody want to form a (laughs) co-op? Oh, man, so many. Well, like in the examples we just discussed, there's, you know, often a need that members of the community are seeing go unmet, whether that's childcare or living wages or access to food or access to housing. So a group of people can come together and make sure that those needs get met. And as they're getting met, they can benefit from not just that getting met, but any, any profit that comes in uh, above the cost gives can, people. Can, can, can I uh, stop? Can I get you to stop a second? Oh, oh sure. <laughs> okay. There's a need in the community. So I want everybody out there to hear whatever needs you have in your community, you can solve it by forming a co-op to meet that need. And if there's a surplus or profit, you get to share in that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, go ahead, Miss Alex. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it offers folks uh, a real sense of ownership, which can be difficult to come by in this day and age. I think we are, um, you know, often often kind of told that most of us can't own and run a business or you know, in this day and age, like home ownership is even difficult, at least for my generation. And here's this model that is saying, like, yes, you can own this business. You can run this business. You can own not just this housing unit, but you can own with this community of people that you're also building around these units. Um, yeah, so I think the, the ownership piece is really powerful, really feeling like your voice is heard in the, the democratic process. And then I've always had the experience when coming together on these projects to really form a community. And I think that that's another huge, huge element is just like the bonds that you forge with people in your co-op are, they're special. And, and the, I've experienced them as being pretty, pretty long lasting as well. 
And that's why I asked you the question from your Berkeley housing co-op, were you still friends with some of those people because of, mm-hmm. of the bonds that are met as you are chopping food <laughs> or in a board <laughs> meeting trying to decide whether you raise the carrying charge or the rent or where you lower it, whatever you're dealing with, or, or if somebody's not paying, do you put them out or do you try to work with them if they are willing to work with you to try to see if you can resolve it? But you have all of these different things that come up and you do it together. You found mm-hmm. solutions together. So, okay. You create these bonds. Yeah, all right. absolutely. So I got three good reasons. One is that you solve a community need. And the capital model doesn't necessarily do that because the capitalist, again, is looking for a return on investment. When I got my MBA, and I got it out at Stanford, so I was close to you. Matter of fact, I applied to Berkeley. I don't even know what happened with that one. I, no, I know I got accepted at Berkeley and Stanford. I chose Stanford because I just liked the campus. Okay, I mean, <laughs> that was basically it. I, I've, I, it was like a spiritual moment when I came on that campus. But we weren't we weren't taught anything about co-ops, and I've since found out there's seven housing co-ops on Stanford's campus, where you mm-hmm. all have 17 at Berkeley. So you find a, a need, and the co-op can help you solve that need. The second one is you have you said a real sense of ownership. I want to change that a little bit from my perspective. Mm-hmm. You have ownership. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Not a sense change. of it. It is truly <laughs> ownership, and you can own that business, and. Uh, like I, I I manage houses here in the multifamily houses in, here in the districts, and that's where I learned about housing co-ops. And you have affordable housing often that you have folks that may be making 30% of the median family income or lower or 50% so that they would not be able to get into a market rate co-op or not, can't even buy, particularly some of these places now, a one bedroom is costing 1500 to $2,000. So you can't mm-hmm. get into there, and you definitely, if you were renting it, you won't own it. So here's a way of getting real ownership. Uh, and then you form this community, and this community, you solve problems. And I really like, this is what I really liked. If you have people in one 16-unit co-op, Alex, I have, at one point, I don't think anybody had a college degree in that co-op, mm-hmm. and they came together and made decisions they're running a half a million dollar business, 16 units. And they made the decisions and they made hard ones and they would get up in front of each other's face and tell them what you have to do based on the bylaws and the house rules, the occupancy agreement. This is what you have to do. If you're not doing it, you have to got to go. And I would Mm -hmm. see change behavior. So I like, I like this model that folks get Mm -hmm. ownership. They get real ownership and they form bonds. And some of these, members well it's been about 20 years now they've been there this whole 20 years so unfortunately the only way they go is what happens too often as seniors but they normally Mm -hmm. they stay (laughs) okay they have until there's no other choice so any other well i have it that you can also create wealth Mm, in co-ops and that's in two ways that's financial wealth and we've talked a little bit about social wealth in terms mm-hmm. of the bonds that you create. But I've seen that in these like these housing co-ops, you have to learn how to work with the police. You have to learn how to work with city council, with different organizations within the city. So you really get a, a better sense of community, the whole bigger community, because mm-hmm. of who all you have. And if there is a profit, 
they can share the dividends, or in Berkeley, they can lower the carrying charge. And I've seen some that have done both in housing co-ops and in others. Matter of fact, I got my first dividend check from a purchasing co-op here in the district called uh, Community Purchase Alliance. And it was working with uh, nonprofits and government entities, charter schools, uh, churches was what they first started with. So because I'm managing a lot of affordable housing co-ops, they allowed me to join also, and I bought my copier machine through them. It was a wonderful experience. <laughs> and so this, you can create a financial wealth. Yeah, and absolutely. W- what else might there be in the benefits of co-ops? I mean, I would add, and this is, I think, pretty intimately tied into the, the ownership element, uh, is that you really learn the bones of whatever co-op you're a part of, which can translate into I think you had just mentioned folks in the housing co-op, you know, having to dig into bylaws. You like you, you have a much greater sense of the understanding of governance. You might gain skills in job training where you, you perhaps wouldn't in a, a traditionally owned business. I, I think, you know, baked into the co-op principles is that education, training and information piece. Um, Number five, fifth it, principle. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and it just it, it, it bakes in to prepare you, hopefully, for running the cooperative you're a part of more smoothly and being able to operate it with the, uh, the other member owners. But I think should, should folks need to, for whatever reason, leave their cooperative, it's also really providing them with skills and knowledge that they can take and that will benefit them in other elements of their life, whether that's, you know, a job or, a, a, you know, working with a different worker co-op or whether that's, I don't know, how you interact with other organizations you might be members of. I, th- I think you learn some really critical life and professional skills uh, in cooperatives uh, that are not necessarily baked into more traditional uh, enterprises and organizations. I think you're absolutely correct. And I've heard that if you're in a co-op and you join a board and you learn all of these skills, then you may next step become on the run for and become uh, on the board of education or city council. Mm-hmm. But because it's democratically run, and I, some people call it a co-op is a small D. I think it's a big D because you get more involvement in a co-op than you do in the elections. And I think in the U.S., the election now is 42% of the people that are eligible to vote will come out and vote. We're in a co-op, the 16 unit. We, we used to have 13 members. We'll have about 10 at every meeting. Okay. And so you get much wow. more engaged in involvement. And so you can, you can take the skills and then come go into other forms of, of governance or I've heard of people that have gotten jobs. And I had one lady that tells she's the president of a, of a board, I think it's an 85 unit co-op in Baltimore. She said that she didn't know how to budget before she got into the co-op. And now it's, it's mm-hmm. helped her personal finances in budgeting and saving and all of these things that you learn. And she was saying how she takes the skills she's learned that has helped her individually learn mm-hmm. her own personal stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I'll put forward that, uh, you know, I was a food manager in uh, one of the houses I lived in in college. And uh, even though I had been active in starting the Berkeley Student Food Co-op Collective, one of the things they told me about why they hired me was not my prior participation, but was that I was the only applicant that had experience ordering bulk food, basically. (laughs) So the experience in the student housing co-ops and, like, gaining some of those skills around managing a kitchen really like directly helped me with my like Future. 
Alex, we've got to go. Time is out. I, it, it came up All on right. me. I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, but I really have enjoyed this. Thank you so very much for being on yeah, and for all you. that you've, you've done in such a short lifespan. It's great. Thanks to everybody out there and please have a wonderful week and live cooperatively. Washington, D.C.'s News Talk, 1450 AM, WOS and 95.9 FM.